I'd like to, as we begin this morning, begin our prayer with this verse from Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you for the many, many promises of your word that enable us to walk each day in the strength of the Lord. Lord, we are buffeted day by day by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and yet it is by the power of your Spirit that we stand and, and that we represent the church in the world today. Father, I pray that you will bless us during this hour that we spend, that you will guide us in our study of your word and ask that your spirit will enlighten our hearts and minds with truth and that you will give us the perseverance to live according to the instructions of the word and not to be uh, misled, Father, by other things in this world that try to take the focus away from the word of God. Father, I pray that as your word is proclaimed here on this property throughout the city of Reading today, that many will be transformed and others will be renewed and above all, that your name will be glorified. For it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Judges. As we read this particular passage this morning, let me just remind you that these last three chapters of the book of Judges deal with a very heinous situation. And the book of Judges does not end on a rather positive note, but on the negative note of civil war and of the concept that every man did that which right, was right in his own eyes, uh, the uh, anarchic situation that existed in Israel in the period between the death of Joshua and the um, judgeship of Samuel. Even in the time of Samuel, there was still great tragedy until God raised up Saul and, and then David as king and changed the whole concept of how Israel was to be governed. God intended Israel to be governed as a theocracy. But the Israelites hankered after the nations that surrounded them and wanted a king just like other nations had. And so there was anarchy that prevailed much of the time. And so God raised up various judges to attempt to bring peace and order and especially godly leadership. And we've studied those individuals. This particular event that we're dealing with here occurred sometime during the period of the various judges that we talked about. The exact time is, is not uh, known. But we have discovered that uh, there, there broke out a massive uh, deviation uh, from God's truth in the city of Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin. And that has led to the situation of all of Israel ganging up, as it were, against one single tribe, the tribe of Benjamin in central Israel. So let's look at uh, the, 29th, uh, the 20th chapter, the 29th verse of Judges. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah as at other times. And the sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And they began to strike and to kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. And the sons of Benjamin said, they are struck down before us as at first. But the sons of Israel said, let us flee that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. 
Then all of the men of Israel arose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even out of Marath Geba. When 10,000 choice men of all Israel came against Gibeah, the battle became fierce, but Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated when the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Well, I'll stop there and we'll pick that up again, but I want to deal with that, this particular passage first. Again, reminding you of where we are in the discussion here, in the description here, where right here, this is Gibeah, hilltop town immediately north of Jerusalem, just about five miles north of Jerusalem, is the city of Gibeah. It was a Benjamite town. It's located on top of a relatively steep hill, which gave them an advantage in battle, as we noted last time. And at this particular time, the um, tabernacle was located here at Bethel. And where the Israelites were camped was about halfway in between, at a place called Mizpah, which was about four miles from Bethel. And so they would go to Bethel to consult the Lord because the tabernacle had been moved there at that particular time. The Israelites had set out to purge this sin out of Benjamin, the sin of gross homosexuality, sodomy, that was perpetrated against this Levite and his concubine there in the city of Gibeah. The Benjamites, rather than saying, okay, yeah, we'll cooperate and we'll purge these people, they decided to defend their tribal territory and these people against the rest of all of Israel. And in the first two days of battle, things went well for the Benjamites. Even though they were outnumbered about 13 to 1 by Israel, they, on the first day of battle, they killed 22,000 Israelites. On the second day of battle, they killed 18,000. So in two days, 40,000 Israelites have been killed, and Benjamin is still strong. And in both cases, you remember, the Israelite leaders went back to Bethel to say, Lord, what's going on? You told us that we should deal with them, and yet we're losing. And the end of class last time, we read that the Lord said the second time, actually the third time now, go against Benjamin again, and I will give Benjamin into your hands. So the Lord had promised victory, but Israel did not rush presumptuously into battle, which was a little bit foreign to them. They had a tendency to do that. Instead, they carefully planned an ambush to enable them to take the city of Gibeah. Was this plan from the mind of the Lord, did God give them this plan? Well, the scripture does not say. The passage does not tell us that God said, okay, now this is how you're to do this. You're to plan this ambush and you're to trick the Benjamites and then you're to you're crush them. No, it doesn't say that. But we can believe that probably God was in the inspiring part, at least of this plan. He had promised to give them victory, but he had not promised that the victory would be bloodless. And so the leaders of Israel, in order to minimize their losses, have come up with this plan. This plan is not unique. It's a plan very similar to that which Joshua used before Ai, or Ai, if you like, uh, many, many centuries before. The Benjamites, of course, were very uh, suitable for this to be sprung in them because they were very overconfident. They had won victories easily in two days. <laughs> you know, they were feeling pretty buff, I guess you could say as they thought about another day's 
battle. Just as Joshua had taught Israel back before the battle of Ai, they were told, the men of Israel were told, that when the battle is engaged, the center of the line is to give ground before the enemy. <laughs> and the enemy will fall into the trap. This is a very um, useful form of battle that has been used through history. Now, whether this was or Joshua's carrying out of this was the very first time it had happened in history, we don't know. But as far as recorded secular history is concerned, the man who gets the credit for conceiving of this kind of, uh, of battle where you, you face the enemy and, and you begin to fight and then you purposely give way before the enemy and so you begin to suck the enemy in because he thinks he's winning and then you surround him or spring a trap as Israel did here. The uh, historical person that receives credit for this is Hannibal because Hannibal in the, uh, towards the end of the third century BC was in battle against the Romans and he only had 45,000 men there and the Romans had 85,000 men. And he did this very thing that we're talking about here except there was no city involved uh, in which he sucked the Romans in and then sprung a trap around them and annihilated the Roman army. I mean he killed 70,000 Romans and lost 6,000 men even though he was outnumbered two to one. So, uh, obviously, this kind of a uh, maneuver works. William the Conqueror would use it at Hastings against the Anglo-Saxons. And uh, more recently, at the beginning of this century in World War I, uh, Ludendorff, who was the commander of the German troops up in East Prussia, used it against the Russians, and it worked beautifully. I mean, here he was with a small force, a huge Russian force, and he captured the whole Russian force, quarter of a million Russians in this uh, particular similar trap to the one we're talking about here. So this ruse works well, and it's been used no multiple times in history. And it works so well for the Israelites, we discover in this passage, as the Benjamites were suckered into this trap. We're told in the 35th verse that Gibeah was taken and 25,000 uh, Benjamites were slain. But verse 35 simply summarizes it. And then, as so often happens in Scripture and sometimes confuses people when they read it, the next passage goes into, whoops, goes into detail and begins to explain what the 35th verse summarizes. And many times in Scripture we have this kind of thing where the Scripture will, will bring something seemingly to an end, then we'll go back and start talking about it in detail, and some people get confused and think, well, you know, this happened, now it's happening again, how did that happen, you know? without understanding that uh, that is a principle often used in Scripture. So let's look at verse 36, which I just read at the end of last time. So Benjamin, so the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. When the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they relied on men in the ambush whom they had set against Gibeah, the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. And the men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in, in ambush was that they should make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city. Then the men of Israel turned in the battle, and Benjamin began to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. For they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. 
but the battle overtook them, while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded Benjamin and pursued them without rest and trod down them down opposite Gibeah towards the east. Thus 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. And the rest turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they caught 5,000 of them on the highways and overtook them at Gedim and killed 2,000 of them. So all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. Then the men of Israel then the men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. Tragic story in reality, of course. When the men who were hiding in ambush, when, when there, there were these individuals, so we're told back in the 33rd verse that they arrayed themselves in Baal Tamar, which means Lord of the Palms, the location of which is unknown, but had to be near Gibeah, and that they also set the ambush at Merith Giba. Now, Giba is another form of Gibeah. Merith means meadows. So the meadows of Gibeah, which were to the west of the city, was part of the ambush also. So in these two sites, these 10,000 or so men were arrayed. And when the Benjamites come rushing out of the city and were drawn after Israel as Israel seemed to be fleeing before them, they left the city behind and the 10,000 then rushed in through the city gates and captured the city because it was undefended. And they torched the city. And of course, the smoke rising from the burning city, as we're told in this account, was the signal to the other Israelites, we've got the city, we're now behind them, you can reverse your retreat and attack, and they'll be sandwiched between us. So now some Israelites held the high ground, remember? They're fighting on a slope like this from Gibeah down towards the west against Israel. Now some Israelites are above the Benjamites, and so they were caught in between. Finding themselves cut off, they begin to flee, and we're told they flee to the east. They flee to the east. Well, uh, you're here at, uh, here's Gibeah, and as you flee to the east, there are some more mountains along here, and then of course you drop off into the Jordan Valley. But they do not flee that far. They flee uh, to this, in this direction, more or less up pack, uh, pack past Michmash here. And most of the ones that we're going to be looking at end up right about where the A is in Benjamin there. That's where they end up fleeing, those that survive. We're told that in the battle and in the flight, the Israelites, the, the Benjamites, lost 25,000 men, 18,000 men in the trap, and the rest of them killed as they were fleeing. As I mentioned to you once before, or maybe twice before, I don't mean how many times before, it has been discovered by those who are military historians that usually more people ki are killed in flight, running from battle, than in the actual battle itself. And so, at least in part, this would be true here. This is the only reference in Scripture to the term Gedim, and its location is unknown. But the rock of Rimmon is known. Rimmon means pomegranate. And the Rock of Rimmon was located about four miles east of Bethel, where the tabernacle was at that particular time. And the Rock of Rimmon is kind of a conical-shaped hill that has steep ravines all around it. And the hill itself is just uh, <clears throat> honeycombed with caves. 
And so 600 of the Benjamites actually managed to get there and to flee up into this rock and into the caves. And the rest of Israel had wiped out the remainder, the 25,100 of them. And when they came to the hill, they thought, why? This is too much work trying to root those guys out of the hill. There, we'll just leave them. We'll, we'll surround them and, and leave them there holed up in this particular rock. And the scripture tells us they were holed up there for four months. The position was highly defensible. And they figured, why use any, why, why endanger any life trying to root them out of this, this cave-filled rock? Just leave them there. What they did instead was turn back, go back and make sure Gibeah was wiped out. And they methodically went through the whole land of Benjamin and destroyed it. Wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. Man, woman, and child just as they had done to Canaanites. They treated their own people, Benjamin. How great was the price paid? How great was the price paid by Benjamin in order to defend a few hundred vile people of Gibeah? The whole tribe suffered massive destruction. How great is the price of pride? the the, The Proverbs keep talking about Pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before destruction. And sometimes we read that and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we look at this and we say, yes, pride comes before destruction. Literal destruction. Had Benjamin been walking with the Lord as a tribe, as, had, and all of Israel, had Israel been walking with the Lord as they should have been, this vileness could have been treated with the typical law of Moses. Bring the guys out, judge them before the law of Moses, and deal with them according to the law of Moses. But because they refused to do that, I would estimate, given the figures given here and, and knowing that the tribe was then largely wiped out, that we're looking at, conservatively speaking, 100,000 lives which are lost. 100,000 lives which are lost because Benjamin would not cooperate with the rest of the nation to deal with sin in their midst. Sin has a very high price. Well, the ramifications of this carry over into the next chapter. Let me read the first seven verses of chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat before God until evening and lifted up their voices and be- whipped, <laughs> okay, wept bitterly. And they said, Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? And it came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. <clears throat> then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all of the tribes who did not come up in assembly to the Lord. For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? In the heat of the reaction to this original thing, remember, Maybe you don't want to remember, but the Levite, after what had happened to his concubine, had twelved his concubine and sent her around and so that everybody understood the gravity of the situation. And they came to Mizpah, this little town north of Gibeah, in a rage. I, I mean, there was a heat of anger here. They were going to do something about this awfulness that had occurred within the land of Benjamin. 
And so as they gathered at Mizpah, they had taken an oath. The oath was that they would not give any of their daughters ever to a son of Benjamin in marriage. Now, prior to this, it was very common in Israel to marry across tribal borders. There was no law against that. The only law that God had given was that they were not to marry Canaanites, but they were to marry within, within the tribes. It was common to marry within your own tribe, even within your own clan, but often they married outside of clans and outside of tribes. But now they're putting a prohibition on marrying any of their daughters into the nation of Benjamin. They did not at that point, of course, visualize that they were going to wipe out Benjamin, but it was sort of an anathema here that they were placing on this uh, tribe in their anger. But now the enormity of what has happened is falling on their shoulders. We've not only had this horrible civil war, but we've virtually blotted out a nation, I mean, I mean a tribe from within the nation. And they're now beginning to bemoan their hasty action. Why, oh why did we make this oath in the heat of our anger? In their quandary, they went back to Bethel to seek the Lord. Good idea. Although they understood, of course, that evil had to be purged from the land, they were lamenting before the Lord that a whole tribe was virtually obliterated. One of the 12 tribes of Israel has been wiped out. Lord, this can't be your will, I'm sure they were saying there. All that was left, of course, were the 600 men holed up in the Rock of Rimmon where they would be for four months. There seemed to be no solution to the problem because the men of all the tribes had sworn, we will not give our daughters to Benjamin. And the Lord had said, you shall not marry Canaanites. They can't marry Canaanites. They can't marry Israelites. So what are these 600 men going to do? Be monks for the rest of their lives. And when they're dead, the end of the tribe of Benjamin. No, that didn't seem to be a desirable plan for either Benjamin or for Israel. So what do they do? Well, let's read it, verse 8. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go up and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones, and this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 virgin, young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. I think that as we look at the kind of justice that Israel often brought upon themselves and uh, the way they dealt with problems, we think, oh, this is primitive that this is barbaric. There's no statement here, of course, indicating that the solution that they hit upon here was given to them by God. God does not say, okay, well, look around, find out who didn't come and go up and wipe them out. But it's within his providence. He does allow it to happen. And I think we find this over and over again in Scripture, don't we? Where human solutions are sometimes used to solve problems, and God allows these but they are not the best solution. Apparently, the Israelites had taken another oath. 
while they were at Mizpah. Not only the oath that they would not give any of their daughters to Benjamin, but they had also taken an oath condemning any tribe or any clan who did not send representatives to this avenging conference at Mizpah. So not only did every tribe have to be represented, but every clan had to be represented there at Mizpah. And so they're looking around. Now, we've, we, we proclaimed this oath. How are we going to get around this oath? Well, let's find out if somebody didn't come and therefore didn't take the oath. And since we, we, since we took another oath, well, you just read what happened. What they found, of course, was that there were no representatives from the town of Jabesh Gilead located right here just over the Jordan in the tribal area of Manasseh. Over here on this side, they were one of the Transjordanian tribes. And so here was a clan that had not sent any representatives to the meeting at Mizpah. So in one way they're saying, aha, light bulb goes on, now we can see a way by which we can solve this problem. But on the other hand, what are they saying? They're saying we're committing a whole city to death, one of our own cities. They viewed this, of course, as a serious breach. Obviously, the people of Jabeth Gilead didn't consider the, the, the uh, meeting there at Mizpah to be that significant, so they didn't bother to even send any representatives. And so that was looked upon by the rest of Israel as being as vile as the Benjamites and therefore as worthy of death as the Benjamites. And so an army of 12,000 was put together and sent to deal with Jabesh Gilead. It was a small town. They didn't need a big army. And so they marched off to deal with Jabesh Gilead. And the scripture tells us that the whole population of the city was annihilated except for 400 virgin girls. They had to be, of course, girls of marriageable age because we're not talking about these guys waiting around for 10 years for the girl to grow up. So we're talking about girls that would be early teens to mid-teens. You know, couldn't be too late because they usually got married by their late teens. But this does is indicate that the size of the town was roughly four to 5,000. So, I mean, we're, we're wiping out nearly 5,000 people here, save 400, that is, this army of 12,000 is. Well, they come back, having completed their task, bringing along the 400 virgin girls. Now, I don't know, put yourself in, in the place of these girls. You're 12 years old, you're 14 years old, you're being taken along by an army that's just wiped out your entire family and your entire town. What do you feel? You feel like you've been taken off by a king of Babylon or something. It would seem very pagan to you if you were one of those girls, I'm sure. Whether they were told exactly what was to happen or not, we, we don't know. Uh, knowing the attitude of males toward females in those days, they probably didn't bother. What we are told now is that they bring these 400 girls to the camp at Shiloh. What's the camp doing at Shiloh? The camp's been at Mizpah down here. Suddenly now the camp's at Shiloh. What is the camp doing at Shiloh? Well, Shiloh was the standard place at which the tabernacle was kept during the time of the judges. It apparently was moved from Shiloh to Bethel to deal with this problem of Benjamin. The problem of Benjamin has been dealt with, therefore they moved back to Shiloh and they moved the whole camp of Israel back to Shiloh too to be near the Lord. Good idea, probably. And so the 12,000 men with the 400 girls that they have captured have, moved, have come back to the camp at Shiloh, which is about 15 miles north of Mizpah. Now it's possible that the tabernacle was moved back and forth, as I just said, which is, I think, what really happened. 
However, there are some Jewish commentators who argue that the tabernacle was never moved from Bethel, uh, from Shiloh. It was always at Shiloh. And wherever you see the reference in Scripture to Bethel, they are meaning not the town, but simply the, the meaning of the word, which is Beth, house, El of the Lord, house of the Lord. So they went to the house of the Lord. And thus they were going up to Shiloh to encounter the Lord every time. But there's a the logistic problem with that. As you go back to the 20th chapter and read some of those passages there, it tells us that, that Israel engaged in battle on one day, that evening went to see the Lord at Bethel, and then the very next day went into battle again. Well, the, there's a big problem with that if the tabernacle was up here at Shiloh and the battle was being fought at Gibeah. It's 20 miles. And in the evening, you're not going to run 20 miles up here to Shiloh, meet with the Lord, and run back, uh, you know, the 20 miles and go to battle the very next day. I don't think so. It took about 20, about a day to go 20 miles, roughly, give or take a little. And so we're talking about two days there. So I, I don't think that that's right. I think they actually moved the tabernacle down here to Bethel, which, of course, was a very holy city, going clear back to the days of, of Abraham, a place where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all encountered God in one way or another, or had built a um, altar. And therefore, it was an important place also. And so that I think they just simply re-erected the whole uh, tabernacle there for the time of the event dealing with, uh, with Benjamin. Reading on at verse 13, Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh-Gilead. Yet there were not enough of them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Notice the Lord gets the, the blame here. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe may not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel have sw had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So here, four months have passed. Four months since the men ran up into the rock of Rimmon. The 600 were hiding out there. And four months have passed while Israel has deliberated, what are we going to do? They go up to Jabesh Gilead, they come back. I mean, all this takes four months. And so finally, they send a messenger granting shalom, peace to the 600 men. We will not harm you. You may come down out of your caves and out of the rock. And in fact, we have something to do for you. And so they were brought down and they were allowed to return to the land, the tribal land of Benjamin, to go out and to rebuild their cities and their homes. Now think of these 600 men. These were 600 warriors. They're coming back to their land. Their land has been devastated and all of their family is gone. Fathers, if they were older, mothers, sisters, whatever, were dead. All were gone. They alone were left of Benjamin. 600 warriors were all was left. They returned to the burned cities. They returned to their destroyed homes. Their relatives are gone. And the only companion they had was this young girl from a different town and a different tribe who was scared to death of what was going on. And... 200 of them didn't even have the young girl because there were only 400 girls that were captured at Jabesh Gilead. So the tragedy of the situation is made very clear for us in, that, in those verses that we read between verses 16 
and verse 18, uh, where what shall we do for wives for those that are left? There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. I mean, Israel is becoming desperate. We don't want to lose a whole tribe from the land. The leaders of the tribe, tribes of Israel, were still camped at Shiloh when they were pondering what to do. We've only solved part of the problem. We haven't solved the whole problem. They felt like they had painted themselves into a corner, which is, of course, exactly what they had done. And they were desperate to preserve the inheritance of Benjamin. So what do they do? Well, human innovation is very interesting. So, they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year at Shiloh which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Shiloh to Shechem on the south side of Labona. So you know exactly where this was held. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyard, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about if when their fathers or their brothers come out to complain to us that we shall say to them, give them to us voluntarily because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would be guilty. And the sons of Benjamin did so and took wives according to their number from those who danced whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. And the sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and his family. Each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. And notice how the book ends. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Casting about for an answer, they found a loophole. <laughs> They sound like American politicians. <laughs> they found a loophole in the oath that had been made. They had sworn not to give their daughters to Benjamin, but nothing was said about their daughters being abducted <laughs> by the Benjamites. I don't think that the tribal elders went to the leaders of Shiloh and said, look, this is our plan. I don't think they said that. I think they kept the men of Shiloh totally in the dark about this whole plan because had they had gone there, probably many would have said, uh, daughter, you're not going out dancing on this celebration this time because we don't want you carried off to a distant land in which to live. Or maybe they did, I don't know. But there was a local harvest celebration which occurred annually and everybody knew about it. And it included a dance done by the virgin girls of the city out in the grain field. This is not, by the way, a part of Leviticus. You go through Leviticus, you will not find a place where it says, well, on the harvest day, you're supposed to, the virgins are supposed to go out and dance in the grain field. This was just one of their customs. Whether it had any pagan associations, we're not told. It very probably did. But anyway, the 200 men of Benjamin who had not gotten wives. Now, how did they allocate the 400 girls that had been taken from Jabeth Gilead amongst the 600? Well, we're not told that. We just have to assume that maybe they started with the oldest of the men and, and just the oldest of the girls had kind of paired them off down the line here. I, I, you know, we don't know. But there were 200 who didn't have wives. They knew that. And so they were told to go into the vineyard next to the grain field and hide. And the girls are out there clapping their tambourines and doing their little dance and you go charging out there and you grab one and you take off. Now in Roman history, 
this this is part of the Roman tradition. You know, the, it's called the rape of the Sabine women, which is you know that's kind of a hard, harsh word, but it's the same kind of a thing that happened, where the Romans didn't have enough women in their city, and so they went to the na neighboring tribe and had a party with them, and then when everybody was drunk, they grabbed the, the young women and took off with them. And that's exactly what happens here in Ben Benjamin, uh, that is at Shiloh. Now, the, the thing would be, of course, that the girls don't know this is happening, okay? So these guys are running out of the vineyard, Adam. They don't know to run because they don't know that there's anything to be afraid of. And, and of course, I, you know, you could, you can paint your own scenario here. You know, did the guys come running out and kind of looking around first before they grabbed one? We have no idea. <laughs> or that he just grabbed the nearest one and ran away with her. If the fathers or the brothers came out and complained, the leaders of Israel were to pacify them. They would come out and say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, for one thing, this is a violation of the oath of Mizpah. And they say, oh, no, it's not a violation of the oath. You didn't give them to these guys. They were, they were taken away by force. And if you are wise, you will accept this as a solution to an otherwise insoluble problem. Okay. Well, they apparently accepted it because there is no statement that there was a problem dealing with this. The Benjamites figured this was a good thing, and so they did exactly this and carried out this mass abduction. So now you have 600 new couples in Benjamin. Guys who did not court their ladies, guys who got their ladies because they were captured over there in, in the raid of a city or they captured them personally in the grain fields of Shiloh. But they went back to begin reconstruction of a tribe, to reconstruct their cities, to reconstruct their homes. Jonathan. What was the rush? Why couldn't they spread it out and steal something from a couple different cities? Why they had to get it from Shiloh? I it seems kind of harsh. Yeah, well, it is harsh. <laughs> I think the reason was this. Everybody wanted to go home. <laughs> they had been meeting in Mizpah. They were meeting in Shiloh. This four months had passed. They wanted to go home. Let's get this problem solved. They wanted it solved before they went home. I think that's why. I think they saw this as an immediate solution to the problem. And of course, if they had carried it out one place and, and other places were then, you know, there might have been some suspicion, you know, and others would say, well, let's see now, maybe we better not have a party where any of our girls are unprotected. The problem was now solved, so they all went back to their homes. The question is why do we have such a bizarre account in Scripture? The primary reason that this rather disgusting and uh, bizarre story in scripture exists is because it teaches us important truths and I hope we've seen some of them as we've walked through these last three chapters but let me just highlight in finale here I think two truths that should stand out above all especially in our society today and that first truth is that life without God is not full of fun and excitement life without God ultimately results in tragedy ugliness, vileness, disaster. No matter what Hollywood paints, the reality is very different. In fact, if you look at the lives of the very people who are on the screen portraying all this wonderful life that supposedly you can live as a godless person, you look at their own lives individually and you discover vileness, ugliness, disaster, early death, drug overdose, all these things. There is no beautiful life outside of God. 
it's an illusion. These men at Gibeah had what they thought was their beautiful life, and of course, it turned to be tragedy for a whole tribe and for a whole nation. And secondly, the message that keeps resounding through the pages of Scripture is that we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. There are temporal as well as eternal consequences to our attitudes and to our actions or inaction. God does not wink at sin, even though there are many churches that teach in effect that God does. He requires repentance and He requires obedience. And men and women who blatantly defy God's infallible word suffer the consequences, which are inevitable and they are often tragic, as it was here. Tragic in a way that we can hardly even conceive of. Disaster on a big scale. And people operating within human ideas leading to very poor solutions to problems. I thought a very fitting end to the book of Judges would be to read from the uh, last chapter of Ecclesiastes. To wrap up the book of Judges with these words, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The period of the Judges is looked upon by many as a dark age in the history of Israel. Maybe. But certainly we all have had or may have a dark age in our own lives. An age when we don't walk with God as we ought or an age before we came to know the Lord which was the quote dark age of our life. But the conclusion is that we must fear God and keep His commandments. All people must do this because God will bring us all before him to judge the good and the evil of our lives. Next Sunday I'd like to continue within the framework of the book of Judges and uh, deal with the book of Ruth, which is a far more uplifting story, which fits right within the framework of Ruth. Probably around the time of Gideon is the um, event that we read about in the, the book of Ruth. So we'll take a few Sundays and look at that beautiful story beginning next week.